this morning by reading verses 9 through 12. As you can see in big bold letters there on our slides, we're speaking of the love of Jesus, at least to some extent today, considering some portion of that, and that always brings me joy because, well, number one, I'm intimately familiar with it, and number two, I, I'm exceedingly grateful, grateful for His love, as our brother just prayed a moment ago. But let's begin just by reading this portion, verses 9 through 12 of the 15th chapter of John, where Jesus is speaking to His disciples there, and He says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you. And he had spoken a number of different things in leading up to this. We'll talk about some of those things. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And let's pause there and bow our heads together and ask him to bless this lesson this morning. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, Lord, let us express our own love to you, Father. I praise you, Lord, that, well, Lord, that it takes so little to recognize the justification and the reason to love you. I thank you, Father, that you loved us first. Father, that is the true exhibit and epitome of love, is that the Almighty God has loved those small things that we are. Help us, Father in the capacity and measure that we can to return that in gratitude and thankfulness and in love for you. Help us to understand more of you, Father, so that we might love you more in return. Bless this word to us this morning. Help us to take it, Father, for what it is. Be fed by it. Be strengthened by it. Be nourished by it. Be taught by it. And find joy in it, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, the love of Jesus in particular is... We're looking at his statements here. The love of Jesus is a broad, deep, vast, immeasurable subject. I mean, you can't measure the limitless. I have that written in my notes, and it was something that I sat and thought on and chewed on a number of different times over the course of preparing this. How can you measure the limitless? You can't. You can't measure it. You can't fathom it. We talk about eternity a lot. When we talk about the Almighty God, eternity, infinity, all of these things are are concepts that we throw the terms around rather frequently, but we also make plain. We have no full understanding of what it is. And the limitlessness of Christ's love for us, it can't be described. Uh, We can't fully understand it. You can talk about hyperbole about different things. You know, I heard someone mention here recently... How can we ever look at something that's actually awesome and express that it's awesome anymore? Because everyone uses the word awesome. You know, I've heard different comics and stuff talk about the same sort of thing. You know, you say this, 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 this steak is unbelievable. Really? Is it, is it unbelievable? Or can you actually believe that it's a good steak? You know, we use things to hyperbole. And we use things to, a, to an extent that it cheapens uh, the concept of it. You can't use hyperbole with the Lord. Not his love. You can't use hyperbole because his love is immeasurably deep. His love is immeasurably vast. His love is immeasurably powerful. His love is immeasurably pure, immeasurably profitable. I could go on and on. It truly is. It truly is awesome. Uh, and at the risk of sounding just trite, 
I'm going to stop at describing it there. Um, But what it is, uh, is something that we can learn to comprehend. We can learn to understand and should indeed do that. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, I think Brother David was there this morning during Sunday school. But in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul thought that it was so important for God's people to understand more of God's love and Christ's love for us that he prayed that we would do so. Uh, That we should, well, that we may be able to comprehend, it says there in Ephesians 3.18, with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Again, not hyperbole, it passes it. It surpasses our every concept, our every capability of, of, of understanding and knowing anything. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. I think that Paul recognized very plainly that it requires something more than our natural, ordinary mind is capable of to comprehend the supernatural, extraordinary thing that the love of God is. And so he prayed that we would have that. This morning, again, it being an immeasurable thing, I had to make things more concise And I asked the Lord what he wanted me to bring, and it was two very concise points. Now, if you've, well, if you've heard me preach very often, and if you've talked to me about my preaching, you know that I recognize I have a difficulty, a difficult time with keeping things concise. Uh, I tend to, while I'm studying, look at this, and it makes me see this point, and then this point, I'm like, oh, that's amazing, and oh, and that takes me to this, and I want to bring all of it into a lesson, all of it into our considerations. And, you know, you can end up kind of not covering anything sufficiently when you do that sort of thing. So I'm going to do my best to keep it concise this morning. We're going to talk about two, two concise points, two points regarding the love of Jesus this morning. And I hope that they're the right ones as, well, let me say it this way. I hope you find them to be the right ones because I felt very clear that this was what the Lord had for us to look at this morning and to keep it concise. So if this seems very specific, very pointed, well, you can take it up with him. The first point is this. Jesus didn't have to say, I love you, to mean it. <laughs> now, why did we just go straight to something as rather pointed as Jesus saying, I love you? Uh Well, let me say it this way. Um, There are a number of different stories that you can read, fiction, nonfiction. I've read different books and seen different movies and seen different depictions where the central character will come and say, my dad never told me he loved me growing up. My mom never told me uh, she loved me. Or, or, you know, a wife or a husband might have an issue with their spouse, and, and one of them is, you, you never tell me, you never tell me you love me. You never, you never say this. How, how am I supposed to know this? Uh, Allie and I, back when we were younger and more frivolous and romantic and that sort of thing, we used to sing, we used to sing, <laughs> she's ducking her head down over there, she knows where I'm going. We used to sing that song from um, Fiddler on the Roof. You know that one? Do you love me? Remember that one? And then Allie would answer back and we'd batty eyes at each other and all that kind of stuff. And we'd harmonize it, you know, but if you don't know, if you don't know that song, it's, it's a fun song, you know. But you have the main character and his wife, and they're asking each other, do you lo-, or he's asking her, do you love me? And so she says, for 25 years I've something, 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 I can't give you everything, cooked for him, sewed for him, 
blah, 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 you know, if that's not love, what is, you know, and so then they go on and, and get real theatrical about it. Some of you could sing it, you know, very, very well. And, but then at the end, he says, uh, she says, mm, I love you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's kind of that thing. And he says, you know, uh, I'm losing myself in the song, in my mind. He says, essentially, after 25 years, it's nice to know. You know, I want to hear you say it. And so, I mean, I totally get it. I understand that you want to hear that. I understand that, indeed, as a husband, as a dad, it is important for me to say it to my wife. Important for me to say it uh, to my kids. Uh, It's a good thing for those ones who are dependent on your care and your nurture and your affections. All of those things, it's a good thing for them to hear you tell them. If you have a struggle with that, for you to tell them, I love you. Uh, I'm an imperfect dad. And so what I do is, well, because I know that I have those times where I don't demonstrate my love for them, I hope that when I say it, you know, here, here's the gap where my actions don't concrete it. In case they should look at that gap, I fill it with the statement, I love you. Hopefully, though, I've said it enough that it fills those gaps. It's good for kids, you young people, you imperfect children, <laughs> to say it. It fills the gaps of your own imperfect actions towards your parents. When we fail to show appropriately, to demonstrate appropriately our love, which we will, because we are frail and we are human, it does help to make up for that by saying it. And so it's interesting, that being said, expressing how important it is to say, I love you, and to mean it. It's interesting to recognize that in Scripture, I don't find, and I don't believe anyone has found, Jesus taking someone, pulling them in, and looking them in the eyes and saying, I love you. Has anyone? I've never found it. Never found it. Now, we do see different things like Mark 10, 21. You don't have to turn there because I'll give them to you. Mark 10, 21, this is speaking to that young ruler who comes up to Jesus and expresses some things and asks some questions. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, it says in the first line there. I don't doubt this for one moment. Loved him. And then he said to him, and he goes on, and he expresses to him what he had lack of and what he needed to address and what he needed to consider in his own self-assessment. John chapter 11, verse 5, those dear ones to Jesus, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, what does it say about them? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Do you doubt it? I don't. Not for a minute. Not for a minute do I doubt this. John 13 and verse 1. In this same time frame that we read about in John chapter 15, our text, in this same account, this same moment of time, Jesus expressed about those who were in the world. He said, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He didn't say that, but expresses that about him. He loved them to the end. I don't doubt that, okay? We see statements just like what we saw in our text in John chapter 15 and verse 9. As the Father loved me, these are Jesus' words, I also have loved you. He expresses to them, this is something that's happened to this point. I've loved you. He states it. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus made plain, well, in his words, that... Look in, look in the past. Look up to this point. I have loved you. He expressed this. He stated it. 
But again, I don't find in Scripture a record of him taking someone and face to face saying, I love you. It's recorded that he loved them. It is not recorded that he said it directly to the individual or any others. Now, do you want to know whether or not I believe that he actually said that? This is just Greggy talking. I believe he probably did, right? I believe that he sat down in those moments when he's talking with Peter, when he's talking with John, when he's talking with Nathaniel or any of those other ones, talking with Mary or those women that followed. Any, do I believe that he probably said, I love you, I want you to... I believe he probably did. Can I prove it? No. So am I going to say that he did? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Here's the question. Does it matter if Jesus never took someone and looked them in the eyes, grabbed them by the ears and said, I love you? Does it matter? And I will just say this. Would it matter to you uh, if he never said it to someone's face? Would it, would it bother you in your own heart, in your own thoughts, if while Jesus walked this earth, he never told anybody to their face, I love you? Now listen, I... I'm getting older. I don't pretend that I identify with everything that the young people identify with these days. I'm kind of in that part of my life where I can look, as I've picked on you Zoomers, you Generation Z folks. I think I flat out mocked you from this pulpit a few times. And I kind of feel bad about that, and I don't want to do that. But it's I'm in a position where I recognize you can look and you can see uh, from kind of a pulled back situation, even though I'm not immersed in the Gen Z culture, I can recognize what is interesting to you. I can identify and see, and I can even understand why. And I will tell you, when I look at this culture, and I look at this society, and I look at our youth that are coming up, again, making myself sound quite old this morning, you understand we live in an age where appreciation, appreciation for ourselves is measured in clicks and likes and followers. It is. Now, if you are old enough that you don't understand what I'm talking about, I apologize for that, but give me a minute with the kids this morning. We measure our appreciation for ourselves oftentimes in the number of likes we get, the number of little red hearts we have on our social media, the number of, of followers that we have. We, that's how we measure things. We, we, we count those who follow us dearer than we count friendships, all right? Uh, it's an interesting thing, and when I say interesting, I say it firmly with some kind of disdain there. We live in an age where people present an incomplete facade of themselves online, on a social media platform. Present an incomplete thing to, to demonstrate who they are, <laughs> who they are, so that people will tell them how much they appreciate that facade that they have there. There's so much going on behind the scenes that's, that's not at all what's represented. And then you have people who pass by, and oftentimes they'll see them and say, oh, cute, oh, pretty, oh, you're so, oh, fantastic, oh, I'm so there. When they don't even take the time to understand what they're even clicking on. So the whole thing is just a big fake mess, so much of it. Oftentimes people go through and they double-click love, double-click love, double-click love, double-click love, simply because they don't want to be looked at and viewed as someone who's unloving. <laughs> I've talked to different ones of young people, and, well, I'll say, did you happen to read what the article was that you clicked on here and put a like on? Well, no, I 
I didn't really. I don't think you would have liked it if you would have read it. Well, I just didn't want them to think that I didn't care about them or something like that. Do you see what I'm saying? You see the problem with that? You see the issue? It's not really love that's being put out, and it's not really love that's being sought. Uh, None of it is actual love. We have such a misconception of what friendship and all that stuff means these days. None of it's actual love. So let me just say it once again. For what reason should we really put emphasis in telling people, I love you? It's to fill the gaps where our actions don't show it. It's to fill the gaps and to fully express to those ones that we love. This is how I truly feel about you, even if my actions don't say it. So in regards to not seeing Jesus look someone in the eye and say, I love you, Jesus never needed to say it. Let me just say it that way. He never needed to say it because his actions were perfect. The statement of I love you is irrelevant when the actions are perfect in demonstrating it. Do you see what I'm saying? Never, he never needed to say it. Man. <laughs> Every last thing that the Lord Jesus did as he walked on this earth. Every single thing demonstrated his love for those ones present and those ones to come. Even if he never said it. He never failed in loving perfectly and he never failed in showing it perfectly. Even if he never said it and even if those ones around him didn't recognize it. In Matthew chapter 11 and verse 4. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 4 it says, When those disciples came up to Jesus and asked him, Well, asked him a question in regards to something that John had asked him. John the baptizer. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. You want testimony if I'm the one who you're waiting for. You want the answer if I'm this Messiah that was foretold in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 61, Zephaniah 3, where it speaks of one who is going to be in the midst of you. Speaks of one who would quiet with his love. You you want to know if I'm that one. Go tell him what you see. And what was the evidence that Jesus was talking about? He says, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. That's pretty remarkable stuff that was going on. The dead are raised up. Those are remarkable things, yeah? Remarkable things that are healings and <laughs> exceptional, exceptional provisions there. Listen, man, I'm not, I, I, I talk about it quite frequently and I'll do it again. I sat in the back of an ambulance for 20 years. And I was able, naturally speaking, to do a number of remarkable things. And people would come and they would bring us cookies. People would come and recognize on yearly anniversaries of something that I had done or something I'd partaken for them. They would come in and they would come and say, Hi, just wanted to see you once again and tell you thanks again for what you did for me or for my dad or or for this or that. I did some pretty cool things in the back of an ambulance. And I tell you what, the best thing that I ever gave anybody... Best thing I ever gave anyone in the back of a truck was when I talked to them about Jesus. And that's the honest truth. I believe that with all my heart. I witnessed to them in the back of that truck. Oftentimes when I was given an opportunity, man, I talked to Jesus. I prayed with different ones. Much more benefit came from those things than putting a cast on a broken leg, stopping the bleeding, etc., etc. If you can address a spiritual wound, man, I'm more grateful to do that. Much more grateful to do that than to give someone a measure of natural pain. 
And that's what Jesus said. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Maybe I didn't do all of those things as a paramedic. But it says the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's where the love was at. All those other things was pointing to the power that was doing those things. Yeah, I can heal you. But I have something more. (laughs) Something more for you. All of those things are loving, but the love was in that the poor have the gospel preached to them. He wasn't silent in telling them about, you know, about the Lord, about His Father. He wasn't silent in telling them about the power to forgive sin. He wasn't silent in telling them those things. Healing, feeding, all of those things, fantastic what He did naturally speaking, but it was all a means to an end and to demonstrate that He had indeed the power to forgive sin. And He was willing to do that. Not just the power, the willingness to do it. And saints, I hope you understand... That is love, man. That is love. That is the perfect embodiment of that. And that was just the beginning of his work when he walked here. That was just the beginning, the feeding, the healing, the teaching, all of those things. Back in John chapter 15. Back in John chapter 15, among all of those things that Jesus was speaking on the night of his arrest, he said this in John 15 and verse 13. 13, he said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And that is indeed a powerful demonstration of love. To lay down your life literally and say, I'll take a bullet for you. And I've said it a number of times. I love everybody in this place. I take a bullet for you. I think that that's fair and I would trust more than 50% here would take a bullet for me, probably. I believe, I believe that. You know, I, I believe that to be so. How about for your enemies, right? How about for your enemies? Romans 5 and verse 6. For when we were still without strength, in due time, at the right time, in the perfect time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man... Will one die? Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. Elsewhere in Scripture, you can support the thought sinners are indeed enemies of God, running counter in league with everything that is the opposite of God. While we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Ah, that's love. That's love. (laughs) Should anybody question Does anybody have the right or justification to question the reality of Jesus' love if he determined not to simply say those three very potentially meaningless words? I would say absolutely not. Jesus didn't have to say, I love you, to mean it. The mere statement, I love you, is irrelevant when one's actions are perfect. And by golly, Jesus' actions were perfect. Absolutely demonstrated from the beginning to the end of his time here. That's point number one this morning. Point number two kind of stems off of this. In that Jesus didn't have to say, I love you, to mean it. In the present day, he still means it. He still means it. Just as no one has the grounds to question the reality of Jesus' love. No one has the justification of doing that. 
neither do we have the right to question the longevity of it. His love is front to back. From eternity past to eternity to come, again, I just put that in, in, in terms that we can kind of understand. Eternity being what it is, this big kind of nebulous <laughs> everything and all of it, Jesus loved for eternity. The Lord God loved us and has loved us always, recognizing who we were before we even, before our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents were even thought of, he recognized what was going on. Predestination, all of those things considered this morning, I'm not going to get into that. God understood who we were, who we were going to be, and he loved us in our situations. As back in John chapter 13, as his earthly ministry came to a close, Jesus is described like this in John 13 and verse 1. This is, again, leading up to our passage in verse 15. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, John 13 and verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, That he should depart from this world to the Father. That's a very gentle way of saying he's going to die and he's going to suffer a horrifying death. That he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. He loved them to the end. I've spoken out of this passage a number of times. You can take this a lot of different directions and be benefited and blessed in all of those directions. I'm going to take it this way this morning. I love this passage in that it's very tender. Uh, when you consider, well, and these being the final moments before Jesus' death, he loved them to the end. And he demonstrates that he loved them to the end, even in this natural life, to the end of his natural life, let's say. You can read here shortly thereafter, he washed the feet of his disciples, he shared a meal with them, he gave us the, well, the pattern by which we have communion, breaking the, the bread and and drinking of the cup he taught with them or taught them it looked like he even relaxed with them for a time being he prayed with them he loved them to the very end demonstrated these things more more than just healing and 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 raising the dead and all of that that was just the magnificent looking things that the lord did in these simple things these simple moments of fellowship i mean he was doing some remarkable things expressing to them uh, his love. He was occupied, certainly, with the thought of what was to come. How could you not be? You know, it's something as simple as vacation for me kind of preoccupies my mind sometimes. I just need to get through these next two weeks. I just need to get through this situation and this situation. And I tell Allie all the time, I have these stepping stones, okay? We have our trip planned this way. We have it planned for this day. And there are these things that I have to accomplish before then. And typically, they're the bad things, right? If I can just check off this box, and if I can just check off this, and if I can just check off that, once I get past that, the only thing between me and the beach, or between me, me and the ski slopes, or me and whatever the case may be, it's just time. That's it. There's nothing else. And it kind of preoccupies us. You know, I don't believe for one minute that the Lord wasn't occupied by the thought of his, well, his death that was coming. This situation that was, well, very, very soon coming. And I believe that when he was sitting there with his, well, with his disciples, certainly as you read chapters 13, 14, and 15, well, I don't believe that he wasted a single word. We can read in Scripture that, he, that the Lord didn't let Samuel's words fall to the ground, right? How about the Son of God? Did his words fall to the ground? Not a one of them. And particularly in these last moments when he's loving these ones to the end by his own by the words of, of God there. 
as he's loving them to the end, he didn't let a single moment pass without it being filled with something beneficial, right? His actions were spiritually or eternally significant. His words that he spoke to them were eternally significant. He was loving them to the very end, though he was occupied with the thought of what was to come. We're going to look at one more account here as we keep things concise once again. Look at Luke chapter 22. One account here where he demonstrates... How he loved them to the end. This is just a very specific, very singular little account of of Jesus demonstrating how he loved the individual even to the very end. Not wasting a moment, not wasting a thought, and not wasting a word. Not not even wasting a word in this situation. Uh, I appreciate it incredibly. I said earlier, just a moment ago, that Jesus was occupied with the thought of Calvary, of the thought of of his work that he was going to be doing on the cross. Occupied means busy and active, and I know that his mind was. His mind was busy and active, and his actions that he was demonstrating to the disciples as he spent that time teaching, praying, fellowshipping with them. He was occupied with his work there, but you'll notice I didn't say he was preoccupied. Preoccupied with the cross. You ever been preoccupied with something? Occupied, that's defined as busy and active, right? Busy and active in in thought, busy and active in action, all of those things. Preoccupied means concerned and focused at the expense and disregard of something else, if not everything else. Let me read that again. Concerned and focused at the expense and disregard of other things. Jesus was not preoccupied with Calvary. Uh, (laughs) I was telling Scott a story. Um, earlier this week, I cleaned out my dryer vent. Sounds like a no big deal kind of thing, doesn't it? Cleaning out your dryer vents, you know. My clothes weren't getting, weren't getting dried in the appropriate manner, so you know what tends to happen. If you don't know what tends to happen, get home and clean out your dryer vent. <laughs> because what happens is the lint gathers up, especially if you have one of those bendy dryer vents. You know, the lint gathers up, and then that hot, moist air coming out of the dryer can't get through, and it sogs things up, and it just builds up, and it's a big, big, big mess, right? So I'm like, oh, I'm going to do man things. I'm going to clean my dryer vent out. No big deal. Got the long, wanded brush and all of those sorts of things. Went down the basement, floor joists were exposed, here's my dryer vent, broke right here at the seam, plunged that thing down, went outside, cleaned it from the outside, all kinds of lint coming out. I don't live like a former fireman, I don't, man, that's a fire hazard. That would have been a chimney, a jet shooting out the end of that if if it had caught fire. I scrubbed it out, it was feeling clean, everything was great. I'd given Emmy to Judah for just a brief time just to watch her. Just let me do this just for a minute, bub. And he says, how's it going down in the living room? I'm like, fantastic. You know what happens when Greggy does this and says it's going fantastic? I should have just gone, stink, man. It was, it's terrible because as soon as I did this, I don't believe in jinxes. I don't. But I do believe. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. I don't believe in jinxes, but I do believe I can make stupid assumptions as well. So I went down, and I'm like, one more stroke. And so I went like this, and as soon as I did that, well, down, way down there, there was another seam in my dryer vent, and it goes, and it popped open above the ceiling, below the floor, where I can't reach it, can't grab it, can't do anything with it. And so I left my open dryer vent down in there. I called Judah to ask him to come help me shortly thereafter. How do you think I treated Judah when he came down 
and things weren't, go, weren't going well with me. I left politeness behind, okay? Judah didn't do everything that I wanted him to do exactly in the nanosecond that I wanted him to do it. And so I was short with him. I didn't say anything wrong to him. But my politeness had left. All of, you know, all of my chipperness and thumbs up attitude was, was, was way away. It was gone. All of those things, you know. And I'll just leave it at that. But there was one point where I said something short and I stopped and I said, Judah, I'm not chapter to you, man. I'm just really preoccupied with this issue. And I think I might have even said, I love you, bub. <laughs> Let me fill a gap right here and mortar over this gap. I love you. I love you. I was exceptionally preoccupied with that, concerned and focused at the expense and disregard of my politeness to my kid. I find it entirely comforting, entirely tender, and entirely powerful that Jesus was not preoccupied with his death to come in but a few hours. Not preoccupied by it. Not disregarding those ones who were dear to him. Not at the expense of his relationship with the ones that he loved. I couldn't say a civil word to Judah in the moment. And Jesus was teaching and loving and praying and preaching when he knew what was coming. Give me a break, man. If that isn't love, what is? It is. It's, it's love defined. It's love perfectly presented. He was occupied with Calvary. He was attentive to it and gave every bit of attention that it was due. But at the expense and disregard of those ones that he loved, absolutely not a chance. And I appreciate that. Now, if you look at Luke chapter 22, which I told you to turn to minutes ago, if you're not familiar with what happened in the time leading up to this event in Luke 22, let me just tell you that one of Jesus' disciples had brashly and arrogantly and kind of foolishly told him that he would never leave Jesus. If you're familiar with Peter, you probably know the story. If you have never studied Peter's life, man, let me encourage you to be blessed by that man's life and his testimony. Study him out. He told him he would even die for Jesus before he would ever leave him. And Jesus, of course, told him before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Before the rooster crows, Again, you're, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, but three times. And you know it turned out just as, well, just as Jesus had predicted. He was arrested. He was taken away. And after Jesus was arrested, then, well, Peter was being tested in that moment. And once and twice, Peter was accused of being with that man. You're one of him. You, we know who you are. You were with him. No, I don't know him. Oh, yes, you were. I saw you. I don't know him, he said. And so then a third time we know. This one said, surely this one was with him. And in verse 60 of Luke chapter 22, Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And elsewhere it says that he denied with an oath. He did it with strength. He did it with power. Might have even... Well, he swore in whatever manner was, was fitting for that time. Immediately, it says, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Man, man. Rough, rough time for Peter, right? A rough time for Peter. And, well, saints, when you're, when you're caught in something that you know, man, when you know that you have done wrong, when you know that you have gotten it 
Well, you've stepped off in some manner, whether you've hurt somebody, whether you've lied, whether you've done something. Now, there can come a time where you're, you're caught, and I've, I've told you, all my kids, grandkids, whomever, whomever might have occasion to apologize to me. Well, you know what? You were sorry. You're sorry you got caught, right? You're sorry you got caught. When you come and you tell me, I'm sorry, you're sorry you got in trouble for this. But there is a difference when you feel, I mean, shamed, repentant for something. Oh, man, if I could only go back. And so Peter, as soon as he heard that crowing rooster, you know, I don't know what his thoughts were immediately. I know that he was brought to attention, and I know that, well, it would have been reminded to him exactly what Jesus said. But there in the midst of his own struggle, in the midst of his own arrest, at this point, if you read the other accounts of Jesus' arrest, it seems Jesus had already been beaten, spat upon, struck, mocked, questioned, blasphemed against, Hate cast toward him all kinds of things. And from the midst of that situation, which I will be the first to tell you, I would have been preoccupied by that. Someone slapping on me, I would be entirely focused on that. Well, that harm that's coming my way, that struggle that's coming my way in the moment. Jesus wasn't preoccupied by that. At the expense of... Of one, of one that he loved. Look in verse 61. The Lord turned and looked at Peter in that moment. And he didn't say a single word. Silent. And Peter remembered. Remembered the word of the Lord. How he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now, How unloving was that of Jesus to remind him of what he had told him? Well, we can take a lot of different things. How unloving of Jesus, how unloving it is of God to allow me to be sick like this. How unloving of God to allow my kid to be injured. How unloving of God to allow these financial issues to come into my life. How unloving of God. To let this circumstance, these anxieties, these struggles, how unloving of him to never look at me and tell me I love you. How unloving of him to do that. He allows the issues to come. Why? Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to those who are the called, according to his purpose. He allows the issues to come in. He allows you to get sick so that, number one, He might heal you from those things. But that's the small stuff, right? He allows you to become sick so that you might recognize the Lord has offered peace in sickness. He's offered strength in trouble. Therefore, I rejoice. I boast in my infirmities, Paul said. Because the Lord takes those things that the power of Christ might rest upon Him. Simply coming before the Lord and asking, Lord, I need strength in this difficulty. Without saying a word, He gives strength. Without saying anything, whispering anything in my ears, peace can come because He has spoken so clearly in His Word. He speaks so clearly that comfort to my heart. 
and those different things. The Lord turned and looked at Peter and didn't say a single word. There was just that understanding because they had that familiarity. And bang, he remembered what Jesus had said. Right there in the moment, he remembered what he'd said. And it wasn't hate that was coming from Jesus. It wasn't correction. It wasn't snottiness or snarkiness or anything like that. It was just a reminder, a kindness, a kindness on Jesus' part to not be preoccupied with what he was dealing with and reminding Peter, remember what I said? I'm the Son of God. I foresaw this. I told you about this. We're going to get past this issue because I have prayed that your faith might not fail you. We're going to get past this. Let's reset right here. And look at the outcome that was there. Peter went out and wept bitterly. It was the exact perfect, perfect response. He needed to weep bitterly. He needed to go out and think to himself, Wow, I made a whole bunch of promises to him. All kinds of things. And here I was preoccupied with my own circumstances rather than recognize what he's doing for me in the moment. And there it was. He remembered. And we can read about Peter. And that he came back in victory, of course. Jesus didn't have to say, I love you to mean it. And he demonstrated it right then when he looked at Peter. Remember, he just looked at him. And that was it. Showed that he loved him. He loved Peter to the end. He loved his mother all the way to the end. He spoke to John that he would take care of of his mother. He loved John to the very end. We read all through John that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. Again, I'll, I'll put out there that it was because John allowed him to. John loved him in return. Jesus loved the thief on the cross. He was loving those ones who were dear to him. All the way to the very end. May never have said it, but his actions definitely showed it. And except for the absence of Jesus in body today, it's absolutely no different for us. Uh, you might not have ever heard the voice of Jesus. I'll tell you. I've never heard the voice of Jesus. I've never heard him tell me in my ear, I love you. I've never heard it. Never, never heard it audibly. Never heard it verbally. Never heard the voice of God in that manner. But the fact of the matter is, is that he doesn't need to say it to me. Because he has said it to me. Over and over and over again. I think to myself, I've never heard Jesus say, I love you, ever. And yet he, I've heard him say it thousands of times. <laughs> heard him say it thousands of times every time I get into the Word, every morning. Every time I speak to him and pray to him, just the very fact that he gives me peace in my time of need. The very fact that he does heal when, when I need healing. He'll give it to he'll give it to me. When I look at my family and their their well-being, when I consider these ones that I fellowship with, when I look and see the testimony that each and every one of you has in giving your own life to him, I recognize Jesus loves them. Jesus loves me. He encourages me by your testimony. Every time I look at these different things, how can I question the love of Jesus? I can't. I can't do it. The statement of I love you, those three words. Irrelevant when the actions are perfect and he has acted perfectly throughout all of my life. We sing a song that says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Let me say that in a way that we understand. How firm this foundation of faith is. The word of God. The word of God is a firm foundation for you saints. 
Then he goes on to say, what more can he say than to you he hath said? What more can he say? You want to hear him say, I love you in your ear, to believe that, to recognize it, to to actually come to grips with the fact that what more can he say to you than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus has fled. And listen, saints, what he has said for anybody who's willing to hear it by his death and resurrection, since his death and resurrection, and the lives and the testimonies of his people, all he has said is, I love you, I have loved you, I will love you. I love you, I have loved you, I will love you to the very end. It's just a matter of us recognizing that. He's not preoccupied by who you are. He's not preoccupied, distracted, neglecting you because of what you've done. Any other consideration, your situation right now, man, you, you are just trash. You, uh, come on, don't talk to me right now. Come back to me some other time. No, he's not preoccupied by that. His entire focus and occupation is upon you. He's occupied with your blessing. He's occupied by your victory. He has the capability of being occupied without being preoccupied. He knows the work that he wants to do in you just as sure as he recognized and was occupied by the work of Calvary. Who is he who condemns? Romans 8 and verse 34 says. It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also even now, present tense, makes intercession for us. Stands in the gap. Stands in the gap between the entirely righteous God and, well, in our own flesh where there dwells no good thing. All of us who have fallen short of the glory of God, He bridged that gap in between. He is the living gap filler. He is the living, breathing, I love you. He is embodying that. Who makes an intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation? Struggle? Trouble? Distress, real or imagined in our mind. Persecution, famine, nakedness, poorness, poverty, peril or sword. Not a thing will separate you. Not a thing separates you. There are no gaps between you. And Jesus never made an error. Jesus never made a mistake. He need never tell you by, in word, I love you. Because he lives it. He always lived it. He always will live it. He is living it just now. Not a thing need separate you from the love of God. Rejoice in that, child of God. These things I have spoken to you, he says in verse 11 of our text. That my joy may remain in you. That you'll remember this thing. And that your joy may be full, replete, to the top, overflowing even. This is my commandment that you love one another. How? As I... Have loved you. I've never heard the words in my ears. Never heard him say it. Never heard him whisper it. Never heard him scream it. But he's told me a thousand times. I love you. I love you. I love you.